Well, that video in our celebration of communion is a great picture of the passage we're looking at today as we're still finishing up the last couple explanations of Passover, where God takes our scribbles of sin and brokenness and shame, our inability to live up to our own standards, let alone God's, and he makes it into a masterpiece by reaching down and delivering his people from bondage in Egypt, delivering them from the bondage of their own sins as well. So the question is, as you read this story, as you wrestle with this story, is it just that? Is it a story? Is it an allegory? Is it a nice idea that it didn't necessarily literally happen? It's just an idea of what could happen to you or I. And many people have come to this passage today and have said there's no way this actually happened in history. There's no way 70 people in Israel back during the time of Jacob and Joseph, could have reproduced into millions. There's no way a million people could be moving or exiting uh, through this area of the world in a literal way. There's no way they could sustain themselves. There's no way they could feed themselves. And so they would say that the Bible is a story. It's not history. And so we want to answer some of those objections today. Is the Bible a story or is it his story? And if it is his story, is it rooted in history? Why does it matter? Because God's making promises to exit us out of our sin, to keep promises to us when we're in bondage. And if it didn't really happen back then, how do you know it can really happen now? So we're going to spend a little bit of time proving that it happened back then so that you and I can have confidence that God will will have a Passover for us, that God will keep his promises for us, that God can deliver me now. And I want to give you some reasons why This story is his story, and some reasons why this story can be our story as well. We begin in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 to 38, with a reason why his story is history. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. Now, there's about 600,000 men, just the men, not including women and children. This is over a million people. Now, many commentators, including some that I've respected, have said, well, there's a textual error here and it couldn't have been that many people. Well, I think the Bible says it, and so I believe it. But if it's true, there should be archaeological evidence to support it. I want to uh, show you some ways in which we can believe, uh, without checking our brain at the door, that this really happened. There really were 600,000, over a million people on foot besides the children. And it was a mixed multitude because many Egyptians are choosing to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as they're headed out toward the Exodus, many Egyptians are saying, oh my goodness, I lost my son, I lost my daughter, but I now know that this is the God. He rescued where my gods couldn't. And so there's a mixed multitude of both Hebrews and Egyptians going on this journey. And with them, they took all the flocks and all the herds and a great deal of livestock. Now, this is helpful because when you get to the question of how could these people sustain themselves, how could they have enough money, there's no way they could survive. Let's remember, they've got all their flock, they've got all their herds, a great deal of livestock, plus, if we remember from last week or two weeks ago, the Egyptians handed them all their gold and silver to basically supply them. So they are leaving Egypt having plundered the Egyptians very, very wealthy. But there's still some questions here. The first objection is related to the 600 number. Could 70 people, Jacob's relatives, have multiplied to over a million in 430 years? Well, they've left Ramesses here, 
And as they're leaving Ramesses, they're going to Succoth. Suffering, Succotash. They're going from Ramesses to Succoth. And then they're going to wander their way to the crossing of the Red Sea and heading up to Israel. That's the journey they're going to take. So the first objection is, there's no way you could have this many people like the Bible claims. Well, work with me. We're going to go to the, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. And in 1992, Samuel Musk died at the age of 96. He holds the Guinness Book World Records for the most amount of living relatives before he died. How many? Well, think of this family reunion. Eleven children. Whew. Ninety-seven grandchildren. Six hundred and thirty-four great-grandchildren. And eighty-two great-great-grandchildren. You think scheduling your family reunion is tough. Now, obviously this is a little bit of a skewed sample. This is the world record. But let's remember what it said in Exodus. Pharaoh was scared to death because they were multiplying so fast. So I'm going to use him as a sampling to show you just how high the number can get. But I also want to show you that there are textual clues in the text that would suggest that there was a high, high rate of births going on here. And let's not forget that the Israelites didn't follow God's commands. They didn't always stay monogamous with one man and one woman. So often there are even more possibilities of that birth because they were not following God's command. Abraham you know, has, has two wives. Jacob had, I think, three. So there's a pattern in their history of not necessarily following God's ideal. So what would that look like? Well, I won't get into all the math here. Some of you can dig into this and research it more. But if you took Mr. Must and his wife in the first generation and say, what would happen over 15 generations to the end of that 430 years? The first generation, you'd have a starting population of two with Mr. Must and his wife. You'd add in births of 11, uh, plus the marriages that were involved, and you'd have 24. If you followed that pattern through, by the time you got to the 15th generation, you'd have 3,342,077, well over the million that's, that uh, is claimed by the Bible. Now, again, I realize we used a high sampling my point is it comes in almost three to four times what we need. So it's very plausible, possible, and supportive that the Bible's claims that there's a million people very much could happen. The second question that comes up, okay, well, second objection then is this, Jed. How do you move that many people? You cannot move a million people from that location to that location. By the time the first person got there, the last person's just started leaving Egypt. Well, that's a claim, and you'll hear that. Even a guy who did a trip with Israel with me made this claim. And so I want to just say that these are things we should think about. I think that there's a lot of reasons why we can believe that the Bible says a million people really did exit. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened. So notice they're bringing food with besides the herds. And it's not leavened, so it would keep for a while. Because they were driven out of Egypt. They're pushed out of Egypt. They're shoved out of Egypt. They couldn't wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So, they didn't have all their food ready, but they got their herds. They're going to be able to prepare that. But they did have the unleavened bread that God told them to take with them. So the question comes up, can a nomadic people that wander around survive in the desert, let alone thrive? Again, remember all the supplies the Bible teaches that they had. And then let's go to a place in history to see someone who did something similar. In 1000 BC, we have the Scythians. The Scythians were uh, Russian nomadics who wandered around in Russia for many, many years. 
And we found they not only thrived, but they not only survived, but they thrived. They became incredibly wealthy in history as a nomadic people who moved around. So as we look at their sampling to see that it's very possible, probable, and true what the Bible claims, they became very wealthy because they traded their herds and their livestock with the Greeks for barley, for bread. And they not only survived during this time of moving about, they thrived incredibly. Now, how did they supply themselves? Well, what did they live in? What did they wear? They took their livestock and made wool from it. And from the wool, they pounded it out, combined it with animal hair. And that's how they made their tents and their clothes. They took the fat from the meat and the grease from that they used to basically waterproof their tents. So here, from a snapshot of history, we see that very much you can provide for your necessities as a nomadic people wandering around. You do have things that you can live in. You do have things that you can clothe yourself with. But, but, Chad, but, but, but another objection. I don't think it's possible that that many people could move that far. Well, again, I always hate to use Chairman Mao as an example of anything, the communist dictator, but it is the most modern, probably, piece of history that we can look at. Um, the Long March of Mao happened in 1935. He has 100 to 150,000 people with him, and they are going to march 6,000 miles, each person with five pounds of rice on their head. And even this communist dictator was able to take 6,000 people and make that long of a journey. Which again tells me we don't have to check our brain at the door. It is very, not just possible, not just probable, it's true. The Bible story isn't just a story, it's history. And recently, archaeological evidence has continued to give incredible evidence for the Exodus. That really there are Israelites living there. That really there's evidence that they left. There really is evidence that the Egyptians were smoked by God. So I want to pause for a moment and show you a video that we began this whole series with, a little four-minute clip, five-minute clip, to give you some of the most up-to-date research that proves that this story really happened. Let's watch. So that's a five-minute summary of a two-hour uh, video. If you're interested in just learning more, because maybe you're fascinated by this subject, uh, you can get it on Netflix or you can watch it, uh, buy it. It's called Patterns of Evidence on the Exodus. Powerful uh, research proving that the Bible is not just a story but history. And if you're not interested, well, you only had to watch five minutes of it, so we'll keep moving on. So what are some implications to this? Well, that's why I think it's history. Let me give you some reasons why I think their story is our story and where this becomes incredibly practical. Their story is our story. In verse 40, it says, Now the sojourn, the sojourn rather, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, the very same day that he smote the Egyptians, is the very same day that the deliverance occurred for the Israelites. So keep that in mind. That the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, and it is a night of solemn observance. Now why is it so solemn? Because your freedom came at the cost of someone else's death. And you are to remember this solemn occurrence throughout your generations. And you are to remember that our freedom, we only have our freedom because someone died for it. And this idea that freedom comes through death was part of Hebrew and Israeli culture to the point at which when Jesus comes, he says your spiritual freedom will come at the cost of death as well. Now, many commentators believe, and many historians believe, that this very same day has a superstition attached to it. 
that we all know of, but we're not sure we didn't realize it was attached to here. The Passover occurs on the 14th day of the month. But because the Jews have their calendar go from, uh, you know, dusk to dawn, six to six, the 14th for the Israelites or the Hebrews was the 13th for the Egyptians. The 14th being the Sabbath on a Saturday would be the day of freedom for the Israelites would be Friday the 13th for the Egyptians. And so many believe the tradition of Friday the 13th being unlucky traces back to actually a time of history. I don't know if that's true or not, but many people have traced it back and believe that is the case. It certainly lines up to a few of the facts the Bible gives us. So their story is our story, not only because this should be a solemn observant for generations, but this word's very important used here. And the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. What did that mean? It meant these people lived in a place where they didn't belong and they were just passing through until they got to the promised land. The Apostle Peter picks up this term and says their story is our story. They were sojourners and you and I are sojourners. We are people who live in a land, a world, a planet that is not our home. And when we remember that we are sojourners and pilgrims, we can better understand what happens in this world with disappointments. We can better not attach ourselves to the good, significant things and find our identity in them as idols. Here's how Peter says it. Beloved, their story is our story. I beg you to do this. I beg you to think about this. I beg you to apply this. As sojourners and pilgrims, as remembering, remember, 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 you're just a pilgrim here. Remember, you're just passing on through here. And when you remember that, you abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, what is a fleshly lust? A good way to describe a lust is an over-desire. You go from wanting something to having to have it. That's how idols come into place. You take something like career or fame or wanting other people's approval or being a good mom or being a good dad, a good thing. But it becomes a lust or an over-desire where you say, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. And so those fleshly lusts become something you've got to have and it becomes your ultimate identity. And Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't think that you can pound your identity into anything in this world. You're just passing through like a pilgrim. Don't think money will ever make you fully satisfied or success will make you fully satisfied. Don't over-desire them. And even certainly when it comes to uh, sexual loss as well. Don't think that any amount of pleasure will ultimately satisfy you, though pleasure is good. Don't think any amount of, of, of good accomplishments are good, though they can be good things. When you lust after them or over-desire them, they war against your soul and they mess up your mind and your emotion and even your will. The second implication, he says to us, is when you understand you're just passing through this world, you, you realize you want to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. You want to live in such a way in this world during the little dash you have to draw people. Draw people who don't believe the way you do. To see the God that you know. Because they are obsessed with this world and find their identity. And they notice a peace about you. They notice that though you're disappointed when bad things happen, you're not devastated when bad things happen. And so your friends, the Gentiles, who don't believe the way you do, are drawn towards your life. And you use your life to influence people to bring attention to the real world you're headed toward. Because you're a sojourner. You're a pilgrim. 
when they speak against you as evildoers, when you get accused by them as things, you're hurt, but you're not hopeless because you didn't put your identity in how the Gentiles felt about you. Instead, by your good works, which they observe, they end up glorifying the very God in the day of visitation. Imagine I, I hand you a pair of glasses. And all the difficulties, all the challenges, all the things going on in your life, the good things that you're finding your identity in, or the difficult things you're saying, this is going on forever. What if I gave you a pair of glasses, and all of a sudden, everything in this world looked like cotton candy? Oh, I love cotton candy. But you know the thing about cotton candy is, you can have a big old cloud of it, and you put it in your mouth, it's gone. You can go through a whole cloud in like two seconds. Well, I can. There's just there's no substance to it. And so I don't get worried when the cotton candy is gone. I wouldn't put my identity in the cotton candy. What if everything you're worried about? What if everything you're stressed about? What if the burdens that are crushing you? What if you put on glasses? You went, wait a second, it's cotton candy. I'm just passing on by. I'm just passing through this world. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I don't need to be so overwhelmed. We had a powerful funeral here yesterday, an hour and a half long. place was packed for Logan Brinson, a special needs 19-year-old who attended our church in Merrimont. And I got very, very weepy uh, in the service. Is This guy who had been through multiple, multiple medical challenges and oh, just unbelievable the attitude he had in the midst of it, his faith in God. And someone who had more reason than any of us to complain, just he had these cotton candy glasses that just saw everything as passing on by. That's why their story is our story. When we remember that we're sojourners, we can have that freedom too. In the Civil War, there was a story told of a general. And every time they were about to set up camp, they were always on their way to another battle. And, of course, the men were weary. They were exhausted. And so when you set up camp, it was like, we don't want this thing to blow away. We've got to stay here for a while. And just as they're about to pound the stakes in, the general said, Now, men, don't forget. Don't pound your stakes too far in because we're moving out in the morning. That's right. Don't pound those stakes too far in because you're going to have to pull them out. We're moving out in the morning. what it means to be a sojourner you just don't pound your stakes too far in you pound them into the world but not too far in because you're just passing on by so the problems you're going to pass through them the successes don't get too proud or arrogant they too will fade away don't pound those stakes too far in we're moving out in the morning so how do you join god's story how do you be part of this story being a sojourner well i think the last part of the passage gives us two reasons to uh, ways to do that number one you enter his story through covenant the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. As this mixed multitude is leaving with both Hebrews and with Egyptians, they're going to come out and say, hey, I want to participate in this eternal ordinance. And generations will say, I want to participate in this. So I want to give you some ways in which everyone can be part of my story. No foreigner shall eat it. Oh, that sounds bad. But every man's servant who is bought for money. What does that mean? When you have circumcised him, then he can eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. What does this mean? Let me unpack a few words because there's some real challenges here. He says a foreigner shall not eat it. Well, he's going to say in the next verse, 
he shall not eat it until he enters into the covenant of circumcision. In other words, there's been people who've been viewing my story, they've been checking out my story, they've been wondering about my story, they're interested in me as God, but when they want to join the community, they're not to participate in the communion or the Passover service until they say, I'm in. I want to be part of this. And circumcision will be the sign at which they choose to put their trust in me as their Passover. And then they can eat it. I want everyone at my table. Once the foreigner and the servant bought for money, we'll get back to that in a second, has been circumcised, they've chosen to make God their forgiver and their leader, then, oh, by all means, eat it, join us. This story is open to rich, to poor, to Egyptians, to Hebrews. Everyone comes to my story. Now, another problem here in the passage is, oh my goodness, what does it mean? Every man's servant who he bought... And we immediately think of, you know, the hundred years of slavery in America and all across the world and slavery today being worse than it ever was in the world where people, human beings, buy other human beings and exploit them. That is not what the Bible is talking about. When the Bible speaks of slavery or um, servants you buy for money, this is the equivalent of a debtors or an indentured servant. So if you were in massive debt and very poor and couldn't pay your bills, you would come to somebody who had money and say, hey, if you'll put up the money to pay my debts, I will work for you for, and you negotiated, three years, five years, seven years. And so what you would do is you would basically have all your debts paid for. Oh, thank you. And then you would spend the next certain amount of time working for that person to pay off the debts. And then you were freed. You weren't exploited. You were treated incredibly well. You actually had been freed by the person who owned your debt until you paid off. And there was no usury or no uh, um, uh, heavy interest that would keep you in bondage forever. God put very specific places, uh, things in place so that the folks could, the indentured servants could make sure they found the freedom after the period of time. And God's saying here that even those who are poor and indebted, I don't want you to treat them as if they're not part of the family. They too can be circumcised and join my story. Because my story is for rich or for poor, for people who are lower class, middle class, upper class, or even people with no class. They're all welcome. A sojourner, now he's talking about sojourners that are not Hebrews now, people who are just passing through the land that I'm going to give you, the hired servants, these are employees, but not indentured servants, they're not going to eat it either unless they're going to be circumcised. He goes on, in one house it shall be eaten. Come together, everyone is one into my story. Remember, you all were in bondage. You all needed my freedom. You all needed my forgiveness. It's, it's, it's one house. Don't carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger, a Hebrew, an Egyptian, an Egyptian a Gentile, dwells with you and wants to know what this is about, I want this Passover of the Lamb. Let all the males of his household be circumcised. When you get to the place that he wants to join the community, he can be circumcised, and that's where you enter my story through covenant. And the New Testament, you enter through the covenant, the new covenant of my blood, Jesus says, right? You believe, rather than circumcision, becomes the act in which you say, I want to enter this story. Now notice here, God wants and expects the the Christian, the religious community who believes in him, to be reaching out to strangers, to be reaching out to those who don't believe the way they believe. He made a way that those who had not grown up with the Bible could discover the hope and freedom of those who followed the Bible and join into the story, right? Isn't that what we talk about as a church all the time? 
not like some philosophy that somebody cooked up in the 1970s. This is the philosophy of the Bible. And then once he's joined through covenant, let him come near and keep it, the Passover, the freedom. And then he will be considered a native of the land. He's part of the family because he joined. I reference all the time this 1970s um, thing called the Engel Scale, a spiritual awareness chart. It talks about how people move spiritually. That somebody starts over here to minus five and it's one of your friends. It's a stranger who, who has a, a potential awareness of God but not the gospel yet. And then they take a step because they meet you and they become your friend. And now they've got a positive attitude towards you as a messenger of the gospel. They don't believe the gospel yet, but they like you. All Christians are hypocrites. All of them have checked their brains at the door. Well, except you. You're all right, I guess. And it's taken a step, right? Because you have a friendship. And the very nature of friendship is you share what's important to you and they share what's important to them. You're not trying to convince them. You're not trying to manipulate them. You're not trying to sell anything. You're just being a friend. And so part of being a friend is you occasionally mention that, that, that some peace that God's given you. Or they observe in your life the way your marriage works or the way you're able to confess or take ownership. They say, hey, what's different about you? And they begin to have a positive attitude toward the benefits of the gospel. Oh, they don't believe it yet, but they see the benefits in your life. And that stirs up conversations as you learn how to share your story and talk about it. And, and pretty soon they start to hear, well, what you're talking about isn't rules and regulations like religion, but it's not like non-religion. What is that thing? What's the gospel? And now they start to have a positive attitude toward the gospel. They're starting to see the Passover feast and say, hey, I think I might want to talk about that. I might want to observe that. You begin to explore their questions and their doubts together. And they get to the place they say, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to enter into the covenant to ask Christ to be my forgiver and leader. And that's the five steps often that people go through. And now they're moving from just being a friend to being a family member. And you want to help them grow. And you want to help yourself grow. And, and the steps there, you begin to understand the gospel's essentials. You begin to connect to the body. There's a sense of biblical competence. You want to know the Bible because you want to know these promises. This Passover spirit gets put within you, the very spirit of God. And now the fruit of his spirit begins to flow through you. And you go, I'm starting to get those benefits I saw. And it's not me. It's the fruit of his joy and his forgiveness and his peace flowing through me. And then you begin to multiply that process. You don't become a holy huddle. You say, I want to go and make friends with the strangers. I want to make friends and not be weird. Christians are going to be weird. You're a non-weird version. That are, people are drawn to you because of the hope and the faith that you have. That's what's going on here. People entered the covenant to the story and they're inviting other people too. When I was in uh, Denver last week, I got to see an interview by Jim Daly and Ted Trimpa. Fascinating interview. Uh, Jim Daly is the president of Focus on the Family. Ted Trimpa is the head of one of the largest gay rights organizations. And they've become friends for the last two years. And they describe, though they totally disagree on family, totally disagree on many issues, that Jim decided to come into Ted's office and say, I'd like to meet. He's like, those guys, we've heard of them. We're political adversaries. We're enemies. What do you mean he's here to meet? And as they talked about their true friendship over the last two years, how they've worked together, these two organizations, to deal with issues related to sex trade. They've worked together to take care of adoption issues and, and increasing the awareness of adoption in Colorado. Ted said this. He said, you know, I'm still not convinced that marriage is between a man and a woman. But I've never been loved so well as I have by Jim. I had open heart surgery. had to be flown to Boston. 
Jim's one of the few friends who called me almost every day, prayed for me, encouraged me. And I went from thinking Christians were a caricature of judgmental, hypocritical, point-your-finger kind of people to finding a true friend. What if all of us, regardless of our differences politically or religiously, what if we all knew how to build friendships with people? And we befriended them so well that they said, man, I don't believe what you believe. But man, you know how to love. Lastly, because God did what he commanded, he commanded, he told us that he would die for us to liberate us. And because he did what he commanded, we want to please him by doing what he commands. See, whether it's the native born or the stranger who dwells among you, all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded. And that is why when you understand grace, it doesn't mean that you you don't work. It's because of his good work, I want to work for him. Because of the faith I have in what he did in me, I want to see more of his work flow through me. Because he did what he commanded, I want to do what he commands. Grace motivates obedience. I was heading back from Denver and I hopped into a uh, taxi. And as I got into the taxi, I saw the, the man who was driving had a big old Quran sitting uh, up in his front seat. I said, oh, are you a reader? He said, oh, I love to read. I said, where are you from? He said, from Nigeria. I said, what kind of stuff do you read? Oh, lots of stuff. I said, oh, I noticed your Quran. Eventually, I was going to get there. Yes, I mostly read the Quran. I said, well, tell me. Uh, I'm a pastor. Tell me, what would you say are the major differences between, I've read about two-thirds of the Quran, um, between the Quran and the Bible? And he listed off five of them. We don't believe in the same God. We talk, I'm not saying, well, I agree with you there. We don't believe in that uh, Jesus was, was died like you guys do, versus you say it's the main thing. Well, that's exactly the difference. We don't believe he was resurrected because he didn't die. Okay, that's what the Quran teaches. He said, but I think mostly it's that message of grace. We work as Muslims, he said. We work, work, work. We work hard, and you never know if you're going to make it to heaven. That's why you keep working, in hopes that maybe you'll do enough to make it. And this sort of easy believism, this gracing you, you guys do, just promotes laziness. I said, well, is it possible that grace could promote obedience? <laughs> no. I said, are you married, sir? He said, yeah. I said, when you put your ring on your wife's finger, or and she put her ring on yours, when you entered into that covenant of marriage, did you say to yourself, oh, good, now I'm going to sleep around on my wife? He said, no. I said, no. Because when somebody commits to you, you want to please them. You want to stay faithful to them. You want to obey them. The security of grace doesn't make us disobedient. It motivates us by love to be obedient. And he bowed down and prayed. No, he didn't. No, we had a good conversation. And he dropped me off the airport. The Bible's not just a story. It's his story. And it's history. And because he did what he said in the past, he can do what he says in the present. Let us trust that the Passover is not just for them. It's for us as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the reminder of your grace. God, continue to work in and through us to draw people through genuine friendship to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today.